It's Friday, January 28th, 2022. From Peach Fish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A Wisconsin judge today heard arguments on whether prosecutors should return to Kyle Rittenhouse the assault-style rifle he used to shoot three people during a street protest. That's a good idea, huh? I hope the court hearing to give him back his ammunition is scheduled with at least a weak buffer in between. Kyle Rittenhouse says he wants to destroy the firearm in a gesture that seems just as easily achieved by not fighting to get the gun back in the first place. Rittenhouse was given the gun illegally, but then retroactively it was not illegally because the judge said the law was poorly written. And now, since Rittenhouse is not a minor, even though apparently it was no problem that he was a minor at the time when he killed people, and since he's not guilty on any of those charges, he can get it back. It is so bizarre. You know, I never wondered when I heard about the Lizzie Borden story. My question never was, but what happened to the cleaver? No, she didn't get the cleaver back. She doesn't even get a set of steak knives. It does demonstrate, the Rittenhouse case does, trying to get the rifle back. It affirms the totemic power of firearms like this, the meaning that users give them. This is fundamental to my idea that we should ban AR-15s. I know it really won't affect the murder rate overall, but that kind of rifle has a draw. It is given a power beyond its function, and Rittenhouse is telling us the same thing. You know, one critique of this country is that we worship guns, and the people accused of worshiping guns will say, no, we don't, though they mostly do defend Rittenhouse. But Rittenhouse is affirming the premise. He's saying he doesn't want the rifle used as a political symbol, in fact, telling us how symbolic it is, how symbolic he knows it is. It's the same rationale, by the way, as why the U.S. buries terrorists at sea, so there are no graves to the martyrs. That we have to credibly worry about turning a rifle into a quasi-religious symbol to the faithful? That is pretty disturbing. On the show today, I spiel about the capital of Ukraine. I believe we've got to reconceive the way we say Kiev. But first, this is an interview I taped almost one year ago. You might believe otherwise, but that is totally true. This was the exact interview that was to air the day I was suspended from the Gist season one. It is an interview about the book, Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All by Suzanne Nossel, president of Penn. Penn, the organization, the free speech organization Penn, had been in the news because 12 days prior, they weighed in on the case of Donald McNeil, a New York Times journalist who faced serious discipline for saying a slur on a New York Times sponsored trip. That comes up in the interview. It was on my mind. That issue was on my mind, as were chapters in her book, like, Consider intent and context when reacting to speech that's under principles for listening, understand the harms of speech, and consider when to forgive speech-related transgressions. So 11 months and 10 days later, I bring you Suzanne Nossel, president of Penn. Penn America was founded in 1922. They defend the rights of artists, writers, and journalists to make their arguments and express their opinions unfettered from censorship. Time was a local school, time was a local school board, or right-wing zealot would call for a book to be banned, and Penn was there, along with the ACLU, to defend expression. These days, however, the rights and wrongs of censors are not as agreed upon as they once were. In the U.S., words are said to be violence, but so is a lack of words. Silence is violence. We've seen that. 
And we've also seen the disciplining of professors and journalists for expressing opinions that were uncontroversial even a couple of years prior. It's muddier terrain and navigating it through her work and her book is Suzanne Nossel, CEO of PEN America. The book is Dare to Speak, Free Speech for All. Thank you for coming on The Gist. Thanks for having me, Mike. So I've always been of the camp that one fights speech with more speech, that the Nazis not only have the right to march in Skokie, but to say otherwise sadly sides more with Nazi ideology than it rebuts it. My view actually hasn't changed. I am sensing that the world has changed and that way of thinking is an old way of thinking, I've been told. How does Penn think about that? You know, I'd say a couple of things. You know, we are fervent believers in free speech, the power of speech as a catalyst for truth, for social progress, for creative expression, economic activity, you know, all the positives that we believe manifest as a result of open discourse and the, the, the fray and the ability to test out ideas, you know, search for the best among them, uh, float trial balloons, shoot things down. We believe that kind of open exchange is extremely important, but we also recognize, look, things have changed. I mean, particularly in the digital realm, the harms of speech, which have always existed, have become much harder to ignore and been accelerated and intensified, whether it's online harassment that can chase people off social media platforms and impair their professional prospects, disinformation in relation to the pandemic or the election, compromising public health, uh, eroding our democracy. We've also come to grips with, you know, along with the rest of our society, this long overdue reckoning over race and the impact that words can have in the context of bigotry. And I think for free expression defenders, it was something of an article of faith to want to downplay the harmful impact of bigoted speech for fear that acknowledging it would open the door to censoriousness. I actually think the better argument is, is, is to come to grips with it and then talk about how we can mitigate that impact and curb hateful speech, but without prohibitions and bans. So you do you do acknowledge, you do say that uh, for free speech defenders, there was they were operating on something of a fiction that, oh, and the consequences of hate speech aren't so big. That w- That is a flaw that you're pointing finger at to some extent, organizations such as your own? I think so. You know, I understand where the reluctance springs from because the minute you acknowledge, you know, harm, not just hurt, but actual harm, lasting damage, you know, that raises the question, shouldn't we be doing something more about this? Don't we have to put a limit on this? Don't we maybe want to empower our government to curb or uh, curtail hateful speech? And you know, the argument I make in the book is, you know, yes, these harms are real and there is evidence to show there's there's psychological harm. There could even be physiological harm. I think it's just more forthright to come to grips with that. I also believe, though, that the the, the best answer is not empowering our government to put tighter curbs on speech. I don't think we want our presidential administrations. I mean, we've just gotten through the Trump administration. We can imagine what it would have been like if, if Trump was not uh, confined by the 
First Amendment and was free to punish whatever speech he uh, so chose. You know, it would have been his critics and and, and dissenters and scientists. And so, you, you know, that's a very, to me, vivid illustration of why it is that we uh, you know, put some sharp limits on the discretion we afford government to police speech. Yeah, well, I think that's almost an out. Um, actually, we do have to rally around the idea that the First Amendment is really important, especially when it literally was under assault or at least critique by Donald Trump. But to only focus on the First Amendment sidesteps, as you don't, as you don't in your book, you take this on, it sidesteps the real effect of how speech uh, is curtailed or isn't curtailed, which is mostly in the private realm. So while we say, yes, the government, the solution is not for the government to censor more, What's really happening in the real world is that people who do have the actual de facto controls on speech have become more censorious. And that, I guess, is the harder call. You can't just say, well, the government shouldn't censor it. Um, this is this is where the free speech advocates are rethinking their past positions. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, many of the most pitched controversies over free speech nowadays don't involve state action at all. They involve Facebook uh, and Google or perhaps a private university or a publisher or just you know a firestorm that builds up on Twitter that can have censorious repercussions. So in the book, I really you know try to parse that and explain how we can curtail and, and, and get a grip on some of the most harmful and damaging potential for speech. As citizens, I think we have to take it upon ourselves that we each have a role in this to, you know, understand when you ought to apologize for speech, when errant speech deserves to be forgiven, how to exercise conscientiousness with language so that you're not blundering into offenses left and right. The kind of extra duty of care that I believe you owe if you have a big platform like a podcast or uh, you're the professor at the front of a, a, a classroom. Right. And the book really is a guideline, but it does presume that the person reading it will not fundamentally disagree with the premise. And I think the big tension right now is that there is a large cohort, and it's not the same cohort as when you started, who fundamentally disagrees with the premise that uh, some amount of discomforting speech needs to be allowed, disagrees with the premise that, you know, words, though they have actual harm, aren't violence. So how has that changed your approach over the years? You know, I'm not so sure that there is a large contingent that fundamentally disagrees with that. I think, you know, the surveys show overwhelmingly, you know, while it's very abstract to them, people support the idea of free speech and the notion of particularly putting more discretion and leeway in the hands of those in positions of power, not just the government, but, you know, the, the powers that be at Facebook and Google, the uh, administration of a university to ban and punish speech, you know, does make people leery and hesitant. So I don't think it's, it's, it's sort of this unthinking embrace of that approach. I think it's rather, you know, the, the genuine question of, how can we as a society, you know, as part of coming to grips with the legacy of systemic racism, get a handle on the role that speech can play in that? Right. So I want to be precise. When I say a large cohort, if you polled America or even if you polled the institutions you're talking about, I don't know if it would be the popular position to 
uh, de-platform controversial speakers, controversial not being defined as Milo Yiannopoulos, but I don't know, maybe like Charles Murray from Speaking on Campus. I once had a debate on the show with a fellow Slate writer at the time who said there's nothing wrong with pulling fire alarms and making it so that Charles Murray wasn't allowed to speak on campus. The large cohort is within the group that are journalists or in the academy. And it is maybe not large in absolute terms, but it's certainly larger than it ever has been before. And you know this and you write about it. And the example you gave is when you sit down and talk to people and explain, well, that's just it. You know, the whole, the debate is that we either should sit down and talk to people and explain, or we shouldn't listen at all. So you're saying if you, one way to win the debate is to engage in the side of the debate that the other side of the debate says shouldn't even be enjoined. Look, I think that there is, you know, right now we're in a moment of sort of reflexive reactions to certain kinds of speech. And it can be really difficult to even, you know, raise a question about whether some very vociferous objection to speech, you know, a, a call for reprisals and retribution against someone who said uh, the wrong thing uh, is justified. And, you know, that does seriously worry me. I think we need to be able to talk about these things. I think each case needs to be evaluated on its own merits. I don't approve of a rush to judgment. I, you know, it concerns me when you know, the idea of due process protections, investigation, actually figuring out what the facts are, looking at uh, you know, the, the, the very important uh, issue of intent. I have a whole chapter in the book on in, in the importance of evaluating intent and context when assessing how to respond to speech. So you know, it alarmed me when at the New York Times, they issued that statement in the Donald McNeil stick case saying, uh, you know, intent didn't come into the equation, the intent didn't matter. They, they then walked that back, I think, you know, rightly so. Uh, and I, I was relieved to see that. But, you know, I do think there is a level at which we've sort of lost our moorings on some of these questions. You know, I understand why there's a lot of pent up frustration. Uh, there's a lot of sense that, you know, that this accountability is sort of overdue. And we've had generations of people who haven't been held accountable. And so, you know, gosh darn it, now, you know, when there are people that come into the crosshairs, you know, they, they are going to pay a price. And that's important in terms of moving social mores forward and sending a signal to others that this type of language isn't tolerated. And, you know, I, I get where that comes from. I think it can have some really deleterious side effects. Uh, and, uh, you know, it can foster these sort of tit for tat battles that are you know, impair the search for common ground. It can have a chilling effect on people who have, you know, nothing to do with the given dispute, but are just afraid of even venturing into controversial territory on topics like abortion or policing that may just seem too hot to handle. Yes. So in the McNeil case, Penn issued a statement. Penn responds to the resignation of New York Times reporter McNeil. The word McNeil uttered has uniquely cruel, painful, and dangerous associations. That is your acknowledgement of at least part of the issue. Still, the New York Times reversal in this instance sends worrying signal. Um, and as you also said, they maybe have walked back there. The idea that intent doesn't matter. Did you get guff flack pushback from not people within the Times who are calling for his further discipline, but people either within your organization or people who have in the past been supporters of Penn on that one? Yeah, there was 
some pushback, I'd say, from the right and the left. Some people, you know, thought we didn't take a strong enough free speech stance. And, you know, why were we acknowledging that this word, you know, can cause hurt and harm? And that, you know, in so doing, we were sort of ceding the territory of our principled position. You know, and then on the other side, it was, you know, why are you, uh, you know, coming out seemingly on the side of, you know, this individual who has been callous and careless, you know, maybe not just in the one occasion, but, you know, some other instances that had been brought out. And so, you know, we expect that it sort of goes with the territory weighing in on these questions. But the, the incident really invoked so many of the principles that I talk about in the book, whether it's conscientiousness with language or the duty of care of a person who's in an official position, the importance of intent and context, you know, the role of apologies and forgiveness. So, you know, it was a bit of a perfect storm and we felt we did have to weigh in. There is cancel culture, which is, I don't know how useful the phrase is anymore, especially when it's appropriated by Donald Trump's defenders, literally his defense counsel on the floor of the Senate in his impeachment trial. No, it's not dereliction of duty that Trump was engaged in. It's just that you're engaged in cancel culture. But one argument against the idea that this is cancel culture or that people actually get canceled as articulated by many people, but Charles Blow, the New York Times columnist, which is, I think, significant, had a uh, tweet thread on this, that people aren't being canceled. They're facing consequences for their speech. There is no, and it is true, uh, there because there's not a First Amendment issue. We're not talking about legal consequences, but it is appropriate for people to have consequences for their speech. How useful a counter-argument do you think this is? You know, I think he's right that there should be consequences. I think what you also have to consider, though, is the question of proportionality. So you know, yes, consequences, but what consequences make sense in a given case? And I, you know, to me, that has to be a fact-specific determination. You know, what is the intent? What is the context? What, 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 what is the impact of the words? You know, is this a serial thing where someone is a an avowed bigot? Is this someone who is, you know, willfully negligent or reckless about the sensibilities of Others, you know, I think it would have been different if Don Donald McNeil, you know, was put on notice about the impact of this word, you know, to to uh, the ears of his audience and 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 continue to use it or used it again. And so, I, you know, I think yes, consequences for speech. And yeah, there's some instances where we can all agree. If it's a you know Roseanne Barr, and it's sort of you know she's known for racist remarks over time. Not too many people objected to her show being canceled, but there are other instances where uh, it really seems out of proportion. And so, you know, I, I don't think that, the, I think, yes, we can all acknowledge consequences, uh, you know, are often necessary and appropriate, but that's, you know, sort of only the start of the discussion, not the end of it. Suzanne Nossel is the CEO of Ken America. Her book is Dare to Speak, Defending Free Speech for All. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Mike. And now the spiel. The world is poised for a war in Ukraine. And we have to ask, have we learned nothing? 
No, I'm not asking something like, why haven't we learned that Putin is relentless or that Ukraine is indefensible or even that war isn't the answer? No, I'm asking, why haven't we learned to pronounce the capital of Ukraine? By the Kremlin to install a pro-Russian leader in Kiev as it considers... I think she's wrong. Not just that the death toll in Ukraine will surpass the 140,000 who died in the Balkans wars. No, just that part about Kiev, or as CNN also says... Is on the ground, connecting us from Kiev. Kiev! How about France 24, their unaccented English feed? Let's go to Kiev and correspond... Also Kiev. Well, the U.S. never had a policy of you can't arm it if you can't say it, so the javelins are about to be shipped there. But what does it say that we can't say Kiev? We did learn from the 2019 hearings about Trump interference in Kiev and their strong arming of diplomats in Kiev that it's pronounced Kiev. The people who know how to say it said Kiev. And not just native Ukrainians like Alexander Vindman, but just regular old American diplomats like here's David Holmes. First, the Yes Conference in Kiev. Here's lawyer for the impeachment, Daniel Goldman. In the middle of a restaurant in Kiev? Yes. Yes, Kiev, not, yes, Kiev, not Kiev. Former ambassador under Bush and Obama, William Taylor. This guy gets it. The flow of, of understanding between Kiev and Washington. And so it seemed that Washington would understand. Here, in fact, is Senator Chris Murphy talking about a humanitarian visit to the Ukrainian capital. When we got the chance to travel to the Maidan Independence Square uh, in Kiev and speak to about... But now we're back to Kiev. Not everywhere. Meet the Press got it right last weekend. Lindsey Graham got it wrong. He actually still says the Ukraine. I'm sure the Ukrainians don't mind the definite article if they definitely get their anti-aircraft missiles. Graham, by the way, sometimes refers to the Yemeni rebels as the Hootie rebels. That's just the Carolina in the guy. Now, when I say the right way to pronounce it, yeah, I'll acknowledge there are gray areas when an English speaker pronounces almost any place that is the name of a city or country, not in the language of English. It's not how a native speaker would say it. But the general rule is that something like one, if the country itself is asking for a name change or a city name change, we'll grant it. But, you know, we'll still pronounce it the wrong way. So Mumbai is not Bombay and Beijing is no longer Peking, but those two words, Bombay, Beijing, it's not like a native speaker would say it. With some Spanish place names, there's a tendency towards Guatemalaization, but not by everyone. I kind of feel kind of silly if I suddenly start over-channeling my inner Beto O'Rourke. Some say these linguistic nuances are annoying. Maybe an equal number of people will say, I can't stand it when newscasters say Nicaragua, or they'll say, on the other hand, it's so annoying when Americans say El Salvador. But my complaint doesn't rest on being irked, vexed, or even peeved. It's about weighing the twin considerations of accuracy and comprehensibility. For instance, if I was telling you about my trip to Köln, and you asked, where the hell is Köln? I'd say, oh, I guess before I really went to Köln, I would say Cologne, the city in Germany, and you would groan. But European names don't get changed unless there is a big news event which tells us we've been getting it wrong. And in the case of Kiev, not Kiev, that happened. Also, Kiev is an easier word for an American mushmouth to say. It's flatter. 
There are no English words that actually rhyme with Kiev. The closest are, looked them up in the rhyme dictionary, believe, receive, and deceive. They all rhyme with Kiev. I hope the Russians do not lay waste to Kiev, but I also hope our commentators leave Kiev behind. I'll have a harder time reforming Senator Graham from saying Houthis, but that is the next battle other than the actual literary battle to come. And that's it for today's show. Joel Patterson is the only guy who produces the gist that could be changing. Joel will still be there. Maybe we'll get some other people. Go to MikePesca.com for, oh, a bevy of information about this show and other shows I've been on recently. If you do subscribe in the Slate Plus feed, I would recommend moving over to the old regular feed, and I could give you that reminder again. We're also going to have a Saturday show. It's an experiment. Tell me what you think on the aforementioned repository of beviness, MikePesca.com. Michelle Pesca is the Chief Compliance Officer of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Deperoo, Duperoo, and thanks for listening.